I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, all you anti-heroes journeyers out there? Doc Askins coming at you with another Q5 podcast, one of my favorites, where I get some of my favorite people to come answer some of my favorite questions to use in preparation sessions for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy medicine sessions. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Joe Flanders, who is an entrepreneur and psychologist specializing in psychedelic-assisted therapy and mindfulness. He has an active practice utilizing psilocybin, MDMA, and ketamine as therapeutic catalysts. Joe has been on a lifelong journey in the pursuit of the most effective approaches for cultivating well-being, his own and that of his clients. Along the way, he created a clinic network in Montreal and provides lead practitioner training for a psychedelics company. He's currently in private practice in Montreal, and it's my pleasure to have you on the podcast, Joe. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, let's get things rolling here and let's hear your story. Question number one, what's your story? Well, I feel like I could probably tell you a lot of stories, but I think the story that we most relevant to this context is my story kind of linked up to my bio there that i am uh, got this pretty bizarre professional kind of life, which is more and more sitting with people, having psychedelic experiences and helping them extract kind of like therapeutic experiences or processes from that. And so it's pretty wild. It's, it's very rich, very meaningful. And yeah, as I said, sort of like an unusual, you know, unusual thing to do when I go to work, especially if I think about my friends in finance or working <laughs> for the government or whatever, it's pretty different. And so I, I could just tell you a little bit about how I got into this crazy line of work. And, you know, I guess I would have to start at the risk of going deep. I'd have to start, you know, with my childhood. I, I will say I am a person that has enjoyed great privilege in my life, especially material privilege. And I would say probably like most people did not have perfect parents, right? Which is totally fine. But, you know, had had a a fair bit of difficulty, emotional difficulty as a kid, particularly around conflict in my family of origin. And uh, from a very young age, for reasons I still can't figure out, I decided I wanted to figure all of that out. And so there was this sort of like intellectual seeking part that really kind of came into existence around that time. I think it was maybe 
seven, eight years old kind of thing. And I just became super curious and even kind of obsessed with understanding what makes people tick and why people suffer and why people become impulsive and angry and do things to hurt people that they love. And, you know, that just launched me onto this journey that I'm on now. And of course, as an adolescent, as a young person, I was trying to figure it out for myself. You know, I got an education and studied psychology and philosophy and read a lot, wrote a lot, again, with this sort of like intellectual pursuit of understanding. I went to grad school and got a PhD in, psych- in clinical psychology and learned some really cool skills, you know, for myself, how to take care of myself and how to help other people. And one of the earliest ones was meditation, mindfulness meditation. And it became a kind of an indispensable resource for me to kind of manage myself, to manage my stress, to stay connected to my values, to not get too carried away by this intellectual kind of part of myself and find my embodiment and my connection to the present moment. And I, you know, trained to be a cognitive behavior therapy therapist and actually did a postdoc in the U.S. at the University of Wisconsin, which was really fun. And then, you know, came back to my hometown, which is Montreal, and started a clinic, which was a beautiful 10-year adventure and, you know, really developed the skill as a mindfulness practitioner, a mindfulness teacher. A lot of that came from my postdoc, again, in in, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and found the sort of this cognitive work and the meditative work and the kind of the spiritual dimension that the meditation affords was very rich and really helped in many ways, both for myself and for my clients. And the interesting thing was the longer I was in practice doing therapy, the more I saw that people, I could help people out of a jam. They could be in a kind of, in an episode of some kind or another, stress, anxiety, depression. And I could really, I felt like I had these skills that were really helpful in helping people exit from that. But a year later, they'd come back. And again, I just, really curious to understand what that was about. And somewhere in there discovered psychedelics as an adult and the therapeutic potential there. And the the very exciting possibility that psychedelics can help people go deep, deep into the root causes of what is creating these episodes in the first place and the possibility of creating more lasting change and transformation. And so, yeah, I guess, you know, professionally, I ended up selling Mindspace, which was the clinic that I developed to a psychedelics company, worked for that psychedelics company for um, almost three years, learned a huge amount. I was really, my main role there was to develop the training for practitioners, which is no small endeavor because psychedelic therapy is incredibly complex. So just learned a huge amount. I left that uh, company recently. I'm in private practice and... Yeah, just continuing on the journey, I guess. Well, you're clearly a careful and thoughtful observer of the human experience and consciousness. You mentioned studying philosophy and psychology. Just out of personal curiosity, I'm wondering which philosophical authors you found to be the most useful in your psychological practice. Mm. In my psychological practice, that's really good. So I think one of the defining moments of my undergraduate in philosophy was the painstaking process of understanding Heidegger. And I sometimes think of that period of my life as like my peak kind of intellectual firepower or like horsepower, I think is a better way to put it. It's like, I would just sit with this 
this book and it would take like, take me an hour to read a page. And I wasn't just kind of reading like you read a novel. I was like reading and metabolizing the words like very, you know, physically, existentially, like relating in a very direct personal way to what the hell he was talking about. And I think, you know, I don't know what his reputation is as a writer, but certainly the the fact that it had to be translated from German didn't help. It's very, very dense. Also unbelievably insightful and brilliant. And I guess it really turned me on to uh, phenomenology, right? As a basic assumption about how we know and understand ourselves and others. It's like, it all starts with direct experience, right? And you could see how that lends itself very nicely to developing a meditation practice and cultivating the wisdom that comes from becoming a very focused observer of direct experience. And then, you know, if you want to really get to know direct experience, take a few grams of psilocybin mushrooms and a whole bunch of other kinds of direct experience <laughs> open up. And so, yeah, that's that's what I would say is really like wrestling with Heidegger when I was 20. That kind of set me on this trajectory. Yeah, I think that makes sense. His whole concept of Dasen and then throneness always made a certain level of intuitive sense to me. I always kind of felt like I was a fastball that got thrown into the planet. But uh, (laughs) reading Heidegger required slowing down considerably for me, right? And all translations treason to begin with, so I don't speak German, so I know there's a whole lot getting lost along the way there. But certainly phenomenology seems to be someplace that you could make a lot of fruitful connections with the psychedelic psychology space. I would actually make one other link there, which is that I was trying to understand my existence and my health and well-being and my suffering, again, very intellectually. And this, you know, the Dasein and like this this idea of, as you say, sort of being thrown into your experience, that that whole sort of existentialist notion was a really nice wake-up call that I, I am a person living in a time, in a place with a trauma history and like a, you know, a, just reality of the development of my nervous system and trying to understand it from 50,000 feet can only take me so far. And even though it was this highly intellectual exercise, it threw me back into my body. And that, uh, yeah, was another important sort of like direction for my development. Yeah, I agree completely to beat the baseball pitcher analogy completely to death and throw, (laughs) uh, you know, the epigenetics of trauma into the mix as well. I feel like, you know, I'm a, I'm a fastball pitch, but somebody scuffed up that baseball. Uh, They've been, they've been playing a whole game long before they ever threw this particular ball, you know, and, uh, and putting those pieces together has been interesting and helpful along the way. Yep. You know what they say, all baseballs have scuffs except the, the baseballs you haven't seen yet. (laughs) <laughs> you're gonna have Isn't to help me understand said? that one doc <laughs> yeah it's, i'm just i'm just jamming on on um i'm riffing on this expression i love which is to say so you know i've got my trauma history you have your trauma history everybody's got issues except the people you don't know very well oh uh, okay right? right so long as they're still in the wrapped shiny plastic on the shelf and we haven't uh, put them in a pitcher's hand exactly. yet right exactly. okay making sense. I'm picking up what you're laying down though. Appreciate it. Yeah, that. that was a bit of a stretch. I apologize. You can edit that one out if you want. <laughs> I appreciate you. I, all the help I can get, I always appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, man, what a great story and a whole lot of insights there. 
trying to transition here to the second question. Stories usually about memory and about the past and about where you're coming from. And then I like to ask people about their intentions, which is more about imagination and oriented towards the future and where you want to go next. Yeah. I think I'm going to direct that or answer that question about where I want to go next, kind of, uh, you know, on the inside in the sense that, yeah, I can go have some ideas about where I want to go next professionally, but I guess staying aligned with the story and the, what I was just saying about my own personal development, understanding of things, my intention is to cultivate more and more acceptance and more and more embrace of like whatever the hell's going on in my experience. Um, and sometimes there's beautiful things happening and I've really developed or I've really tuned into a kind of a general sensitivity that I have in my nervous system that probably comes from a long time ago. And I do have a sensitivity for beautiful things that I come across in my life. And it's easy to embrace that, to just be fully present for that. But I struggle a lot when I don't like what's happening in my experience, right? And so that creates all kinds of experiential avoidance, meaning, you know, finding all kinds of strategies and ways of distancing myself or cutting myself off from things that I don't like. And that could be, you know, when one of my kids is not listening to me or when I'm exhausted because I'm working too much or when I'm feeling sort of not relevant or lonely or something professionally or frustrated with things not going my way one way or another. All of those things create discomfort inside of me. It's a frustration or, or just the discomfort of exhaustion or irritation with other people or whatever it is. And I think all that can be painful, but it doesn't have to involve suffering. And I think the suffering comes in when I'm resisting whatever is there. And so my ongoing practice is just to get really, really good at opening up and listening to what's happening without it needing to be anything other than it is. So that's hard, but that's, those are my intentions for my internal spiritual life, let's say. I love it. It's a phenomenal, phenomenological answer right. to a question right. about your intentions and you took that inward instead of outward. That's yeah. A, that's a beautiful way of answering right. that. Nobody's answered the question that way so far in all these recordings mm. there, Dr. Joe. So I appreciate that greatly, which segues nicely into our third question about gratefulness. What are you grateful for? You know, I guess I alluded a little bit to this earlier, maybe should have kept it for this question, which is like, I think I'm a very sensitive person. Like my nervous system is really, has low thresholds for firing. So that makes me reactive. I can feel anxious. I can feel irritable, but it also makes me really appreciate when things are cool. And I... You know, I think partly because of meditation, partly because of my experience with non-ordinary states, partly just a kind of inborn sensitivity or reactivity of my nervous system, I can find things like really beautiful, like really, I can experience awe, right? And I really, really like that. It provides a sense of orientation and value for me. It makes me feel really alive, makes me feel really connected. And 
I've been extremely deliberate about this and it's just recently I feel it's paying off. It's like, I could just be really grateful that, you know, I'm sitting here and, uh, you know, not in too much pain because I do have some issues like with uh, chronic pain in my neck. And if there's a moment where I have energy that I'm not in pain, that I'm not really distracted and irritated by something, I can just really love the way, you know, the sun is sort of like reflecting off that succulent plant that I'm looking at over there. And just, if I really pay attention, can be moved to feel chills, you know? And it's just like, I'm so grateful that I've got these eyes and this appreciation and my body and my organs are working and I can breathe. And like, I just have the privilege of being in this moment and it's gorgeous, it's delicious. And so I'm grateful for whatever this sort of, the mystery of existence, the mystery of my consciousness that I could kind of witness some these incredibly beautiful things are happening all the time if you just pay attention. Strategic navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. Well, it's interesting that your practice of gratefulness seems to dovetail with your practice of mindfulness there because you're just drawing yourself further into the present moment, right? Yes. Looking at the sunshine and the succulent. Yes. Making that bridge I, between the past and the future there. It's a beautiful thing. Yes. that's it's. I appreciate you making that link. And again, kind of going deep on some of the stuff I've often sort of asked myself, it's like, is this it? It's like, the whole point here is just to appreciate these beautiful things. Like there's nothing more. I don't have to, I don't have to like capture it in some way or take it with me or analyze it or be rich or like a million different things. And something unlocked for me recently, which is that enjoying those moments of awe is enough. It's like that old Jack Nicholson movie. What if this is as good as it gets? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think we're on the right track for what that, for what my opinion's worth. I think we're on the right track. Well, if we're aligned with the Jack Nicholson movie, I think we're okay. <laughs> this is the way. Yeah. So we've asked about your past and your intentions and what you're grateful for. So taking all of that gratefulness and all of that mindfulness in the present moment, what are you creating? Yeah. Well, at the moment I'm like on a professional level, kind of taking a break which is really nice. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm in private practice, I'm seeing my clients, I'm doing the occasional psychedelic assisted therapy session, but I'm not working as a VP in a corporation anymore, which was super rich and important phase of my career. But I really sort of felt at a balance there, almost just energetically and, and you know, just physiologically, it was just really, really stressful and the pace was intense and hard to be a good therapist under those circumstances. And so I guess what I, what I would say is that I'm not formally building anything right now, which feels really nice. I guess the question of not, so I'm not formally creating anything, any entrepreneurial, anything entrepreneurial at the moment. I will at some point. And I think what I'm, what gives me the most energy in terms of creativity right now is bringing people together in community 
And I would say, so I guess the direct answer to the question, what am I creating is I think I'm creating a community of, of therapists. And, and part of that comes again from my experience working in that psychedelics company and really learning what it, what it means to do psychedelic assisted therapy. It's very hard. It's exhausting. It triggers all kinds of personal baggage, personal issues and neuroses and traumas. And one really needs to be in community to do that properly. And I'm not talking about like, you know, joining an online, you know, fitness group or something with 700 other people. I'm talking about people coming together who feel so safe and so connected that they can share the darkest shit that they've experienced in their life and how those memories have entered into a therapy session they did yesterday. And so maybe, you know what, maybe it's more relationships than it is community, but put a few of these relationships together and you have a, a really, really supportive and nurturing kind of home base for helping other people and continuing personal growth and healing and stuff like that. So yeah, that's what I would say is I'm, I'm, I'm creating deeper relationships in my life. Sounds like you're describing, you know, there's a therapy space and a personal space, and then there's this third thing, this third space that you're wanting to create for psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy practitioners in particular, where you can integrate the therapy space and the personal space safely and in a healthy way that allows you to flourish in those other spaces. Would that be accurate? Accurate and and uh, very efficiently summarized. I, I really appreciate it. And I really think it's necessary and difficult to do that. Yeah, I could see where that would involve, you know, a lot of different skill sets, but it seems like <laughs> you're the man for the job from what I'm putting together from this discussion. Yeah, I might be. I really hope so. Because I, I, like, that's the kind of thing I do when I have free time. You know what I mean? It's what I have energy for. I feel like it's it aligns with what I'm good at. And, you know, we'll see what it turns into, but that's kind of my thing, I think. Yeah. I, I don't imagine you doing it all by yourself, but I see you being kind of a prime mover on rolling that rock up the hill at least. Yeah. And if there's yeah. ever any way that I could throw a shoulder under the rock, you just let me know. Okay. Cool. I might take you up on that. It might be fun. So long as it's fun. If it gets boring, I might bounce. We'll see. Just fair warning. That's, there's very little in the psychedelic field that's boring, but absolutely we'll true. see. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least it's not boring. There's this old uh, war movie, Heartbreak Ridge, with Clint Eastwood in it. He's locked in prison and he's he's drunk, and they come in to take him out of the drunk tank, and he says, "You can run me, and you can beat me, and you can starve me, and you can kill me. Just don't ever bore me." <laughs> <laughs> and that always resonated with that. me more than any other line yeah. of the movie. So yeah, yeah, if we psychedelic spaces, you know, all those other things might happen, but you probably won't get bored in it, right? Right. Yep. Exactly. So given that you're looking to create some of those sorts of that sort of third space for therapists there, that brings us around to our final question. Like who's really going to do that? Who are you really, Dr. Joe mm. Flanders? Yeah. I think that I used to really understand myself as this like disembodied thinker, you know, just like really up in my head and I could show up at a party or whatever. And like, I would be experiencing the party 
through my play-by-play kind of guy in my head. Oh, that'd be cool. Go over there. I wonder what that person's like. Oh, that person, what that person thinks of me. And just like, that was me. That was that voice in my head. And I really identified with it. I think as I've kind of grown out of that, I think who I really am is this kind of like sensitive little kid underneath that's, that's, you know, craving connection and craving those moments of awe and gets really easily kind of scared off if things get too intense. And I've got lots of protectors, lots of parts of me that come in and kind of dampen things down and numb things out and even make me come across as quite confident and assertive and sometimes even reckless. And I think different people react to different parts of me. And I guess the people that know me really well know that more sensitive and more open and curious feels like a young, a young part. So yeah, I hope that answers the question. That was a little abstract. Uh, No, I think it's good. You know, there's that difficult first step of de-identifying from the voices in your head that I think, you know, it takes potentially decades, if ever, for people to even begin on the path there. <laughs> yeah. So to, yeah. to hear you say that is a, is a really major insight from, from my perspective. And then just to connect with curiosity from childhood, uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a beautiful place to be. Yeah. I feel really alive when I'm curious and connected to other people. Well, I feel really alive right now after having this conversation <laughs> with you for what that's worth. Appreciate it. Same here. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? No, I think we're good. You feel complete? I think so. I feel like I um, I got vulnerable with you and, and with whoever's listening, maybe more so than I thought I would. But again, I think that's kind of who I am. Well, I'm glad you were willing to open up a bit and be authentic here. And I truly like who you are, Dr. Joe. Appreciate it. Feelings mutual. Doc out.